Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am your host, Father Thomas J. Loya. We are moving quickly through the season of Advent, or as we say in the Byzantine Church, the season of the Philip's Fast. Filipovka, in the Slavonic language, the mother tongue of my particular church, it's a Slavic-based Byzantine church. And during this time, as I mentioned before, in previous programs, we have what I call a little touchstone. It almost reminds me also like a, like a frog or toad who jumps from lily pad to lily pad in the pond. We have a couple of lily pads, especially this week. We have them throughout the Advent season, but we also have them this week. One is the Feast of St. Nicholas, and the other one is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, all during this coming week. In the Eastern churches, we call the Immaculate Conception the Conception of the Virgin Mary in the Womb of St. Anne. Of course, it's naturally longer. It's Eastern, (laughs) so it has to be longer. And these two feasts are, as I mentioned, like little lily pads, little stepping stones as we move along towards the season, the actual event of the coming of Christ, the second person, the Trinity in the flesh. The celebration of St. Nicholas is very big in the Eastern churches, especially in the Slavic churches, Slavic-based churches, the churches in Russia and Eastern Europe. In fact, in the Byzantine church, St. Nicholas is actually considered to be the patron saint of the whole Byzantine Catholic church. And he's depicted here at Annunciation Church, my parish, on the icon screen. That's that great decorative wall with three sets of doors on it that separates the sanctuary from the nave. And it has major icons on it and smaller ones as well. Nicholas is one of the major ones on my particular icon screen. And that's true in many Byzantine Slavic-based churches. So he's very, very big. And he is a true historical figure. He was present at the Council of Nicaea. And he actually was famous for reprimanding Arius, and he was reprimanded himself for reprimanding Arius. Then the Virgin Mary appeared to one of the bishops, and she told the bishop to reinstall St. Nicholas into the good graces of the other bishops. So what he did was something that uh, today we might consider to be so-called politically incorrect. He slapped Arius in the face, according to stories. 
because Arius was pronouncing a heresy. In fact, that was one of the reasons for the Council of Nicaea. Nonetheless, what we have in Nicholas is an example of many things, one of which is someone who stood up for the true faith, who really was passionately committed to the true belief. He was also very committed to charity. That's why the many great, charming stories about him, especially the one of the the golden coins that he threw into the bedroom window of these young girls at night because their father, being poor, was going to sell them, actually, sell his children off into prostitution just to make money. And St. Nicholas wouldn't have any of that. So he came by one day and tossed a bag of golden coins. It was the dowry that the father needed to marry his girls instead of selling them off to prostitution. He's also the patron saint of sailors. He's a patron saint of a number of things. And as I mentioned, very, very significant in the Eastern churches. We have a very big celebration for him liturgically, but also at my parish, we just had the Christmas on the Prairie event in which we feature St. Nicholas. He's the great climactic ending of the day where he rides up our driveway in a Charles Dickens era carriage pulled by a white Clydesdale horse, and he gives rides and treats to the children. So it's a big deal for us. And yes, there's a lot of what we might consider to be mythological, almost mythological kind of stories surrounding St. Nicholas, but he really did exist. Many of these stories are true or certainly based in truth. Some of the stories about St. Nicholas actually do get confused with another St. Nicholas, another Nicholas of the church. But nonetheless, we have to admit there's got to be something to this, that this particular person, this particular bishop, his story, his legend, the charm, the mystery fact or fiction or whatever, it all has come down to us through the centuries, and it is huge. Let's face it. Santa Claus, of course, is a variation, a distillation of St. Nicholas. And look at the spirit of it. Look at how huge that is, especially for children. There is something to this. It could not have just been passed down if it was just all myth. He really did exist. Many of the stories are true. One thing we do know that is true is that his body is buried in Bari, in a church in Bari, Italy. It was actually brought there by some sailors to protect it. It was actually in today's country of Turkey. It was brought to Bari, Italy, actually to protect it from the invading Muslims. And it was brought to Bari, Italy. It has been there since. And it has since been known to exude a fragrant myrrh. So he is the myrrh-bearing or ointment-bearing saint, St. Nicholas. Recently, his relics were taken to Russia. And of course, as I mentioned, St. Nicholas is very, very popular in Russia. And there were huge crowds. And unfortunately, this didn't get much coverage in the news. There were huge crowds. I've heard even figures of over a million people lined up just to pass by his relics. You didn't hear anything about that. Of course, you heard it here exclusively on Light of the East. But it did happen. And just goes to show you the reverence for St. Nicholas even today, even with a country that has recently come out of atheism and communism. So there has to be something very real and very special about this St. Nicholas. And proud to say he was originally a saint of the Eastern Church, in particular the Byzantine Church. The custom on the eve of the Feast of St. Nicholas, the feast is actually December 6th. On the eve, the custom is for children to put their shoes out when they go to sleep. And when they wake up, there are special little treats in there that St. Nicholas delivered to them during the night while they slept. In fact, that's really where we get the custom of jolly old St. Nicholas coming down the chimney, you know, those stories and leaving presents on Christmas Eve. 
The original time in most of Christianity for gift-giving around this season was, in fact, the Feast of St. Nicholas because of his own gifts of giving, as we mentioned before, the golden coins and so on. So really, the gift-giving was on the Feast of St. Nicholas or that eve, and Christmas was not so much a time of gift-giving. It was much more liturgical, much more of a holy day, and a time for, yes, for visiting, getting together. But the actual exchange of gifts happened more so on the feast or the eve of St. Nicholas. Also, in other areas of Christianity, the gift-giving happened on the Feast of Epiphany in commemoration of the gifts of the three magi. Remember, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the newborn Christ child. So this whole thing about Christmas Eve and Christmas Day being a very, very big gift-giving time is, is a more recent phenomenon, but it has its roots in the observance of St. Nicholas. Another of the lily pads we have, or touchstones this week, is the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, or the, as we say in the Eastern churches, the conception of the Mother of God in the womb of St. Anne. Now, sometimes people confuse this with Christ's conception. The Immaculate Conception refers to the conception of the Virgin Mary when she was conceived in the womb of Anne, her mother Anne. Joachim and Anne were very righteous Jewish people, and they bore a very painful shame. The shame was they were sterile, they were barren, they were childless, and they were getting up in age. And in the Jewish tradition, that was a real shame because, first of all, childbearing was considered to be a blessing by God, but also because in the Jewish tradition, all couples realized that they could potentially be the couple that would bear the Messiah. So that's why they always wanted to have children. Now, without children, that possibility was no longer open to Joachim and Anne. And they were heartbroken. The story goes that Joachim and Anne both prayed individually about their barrenness, and lo and behold, they were promised that they would, in fact, become fruitful. They would conceive, which seemed to them rather strange at their age, but they did. Now, what's really inspiring about that, well, there's many things actually, but one thing in particular, according to the liturgical text, which is where we get all of our beliefs, that's sort of our uh, barometers to what we believe, how to understand things. We go to the liturgical text. In other words, how the church prays is how the church believes. This is especially true in the liturgy of the Eastern churches, because we have the dogmatic hymnody, which expresses our beliefs and theology. So we check everything to that. In the liturgical text, in the dogmatic hymns of the Eastern churches, it says that Anne promised God that if he gave her a child, that she would offer that child back to God. Isn't that amazing? Here she is heartbroken to have a child. You think she would be real possessive of it. In fact, sometimes you hear that today, where parents don't necessarily want their child to enter religious life, because they maybe they only have one or two children, and they want grandchildren. So they don't really encourage their child to go into religious life, where they would be celibate the rest of their life, and obviously not have grandchildren. Here you have an example of Anne, heartbroken, for reasons that we don't really hold today as much. In her tradition, that Jewish, ancient Jewish tradition, that was a deep heartbreak, and yet she told God that if I receive a child. If I conceive, I will offer that child back to you. And in fact, she did. And we're going to talk about that tradition when we return. I'm Father Thomas Leia on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. 
That's byzantinecatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Welcome to a St. Nicholas Minute. Do you know what the Christmas spirit is? Some say the Christmas spirit is a feeling. A feeling of love, joy, and peace that comes this time each year. (laughs) You know, it's not a bad answer. It's just incomplete. The Christmas spirit is the living presence of the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit actively animating and perfecting the lives of Christians. In fact, the love, joy, and peace that we associate with the Christmas spirit are what St. Paul calls the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Many wish the Christmas spirit could be with us all year round. Well, I've got news for you. It can. Why do you think I'm so jolly? So even long after the Christmas decorations are stored away, our hearts can be filled 365 days with the same love, joy, and peace that the angels proclaim to the shepherds if we are open to the power of the Holy Spirit, the true Christmas spirit. For Christ is born, glorify him. You're listening to Father Thomas Loyer on Light of the East. This is Bold Talk with Father Thomas Loyer. We live in strange times, full of contradictions, many of which we create and then force upon ourselves. An example. To hear the rest of this and other Bold Talks with Father Thomas Loya, visit TaborLife.org and go to the main menu and click subscribe. 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 Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. Lily pads, as if we're a little toad or frog and jumping from lily pad to lily pad during this Advent or Philip's fast season on our way to the celebration of the coming of Christ in the flesh, Christmas. Now, before I go further with our explanation of one of those lily pads, those touchstones, that is the Immaculate Conception or the conception of the Virgin Mary in the womb of St. Anne, I just want to remind you that hopefully you are doing your fasting and praying fasting from meat and dairy products Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can also do it throughout the whole week, only in a lesser way. But the big days are Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Also, hopefully, you have considered turning your eyes towards the land where Jesus was born, where there is a great deal of hardship and suffering among our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and that you will help to support an effort to bring aid to those people, people whom you don't hear much about nowadays, but yet whose numbers are great and they are suffering terribly. That charity that we have been promoting here for that reason is iraqichristianrelief.org, iraqichristianrelief.org. Or you can also go to victimsofisis.org, victimsofisis.org, and make your contribution. Your money goes directly to the people for aid. It does not go through a bureaucracy. It goes directly for the aid that the people need. And much of what they need, and what, much of what is being supplied for them is things that, like toilet paper, you know, and diapers, food, heat, kerosene, so they can heat their little cabins that they're in. They're actually their cargo bins that these people are living in. They're in refugee camps. They're suffering terribly. And they're people just like you and me, that they had professions. They were just, just like you and I, and then suddenly found themselves with nothing. Families killed and murdered, tortured, and so on. 
So in the spirit of St. Nicholas that we've talked about already today, try to turn your eyes towards the people in what might seem to be a far-off land, but really they're not very far at all. We're all united. We're all one in Christ. IraqiChristianRelief.org or also VictimsOfIsis.org. As I mentioned, the story of the conception of the Virgin Mary in the womb of St. Anne, as we call it in the Eastern churches, begins with Anne and Joachim, who were barren, they were sterile, and they promised God they would offer their child to God if they were to conceive. And they didn't conceive miraculously. And boy, what a conception, the Virgin Mary. And what Anne did, according to the tradition, the tradition is that Anne and Joachim took the Virgin Mary at age three to the temple And they turned her over to the priest, Zechariah. He received her and took her into the temple, and she was raised there and fed by angels. So it's a a beautiful story. We don't know how much is actually factual, but the point is, as always in the liturgy of the church, the, the liturgical calendar of the church, and also in the Bible, there's always a message. There's always a mystery and a message that we are to be drawn into, immersed into. And there's a lot of those messages, those mysteries here in this feast day. One of those messages certainly is the selflessness of Anne and Joachim, their faith that they wanted a child, and if they got the child, they would give that gift back to God as a gift. And they would bring her to the temple so that she herself could become, as liturgical texts say, she herself could become a living tabernacle, a living temple of God. In fact, that's what happened. A temple or a tabernacle is where God dwells, where God is present. So, too, God was present in the very womb of the Virgin Mary. And so she becomes the mystical tabernacle. This is why we have her icon, which features Christ as though coming from her womb, from her heart, from the very center of her being. We have that icon, it's called the Platitera, painted above the altar in the sanctuary in Byzantine churches. That's where it's supposed to go. It's a very prominent icon. And she hovers over the altar because on the altar is the tabernacle in Byzantine churches. It's always on the altar. And of course, the tabernacle has in it the consecrated bread, the presence of Christ in the consecrated bread. And so she herself is that mystical tabernacle, and therefore she is painted on the ceiling that arches over the altar in the sanctuary of Byzantine churches. This icon is also called the Platitera, which means more spacious than the heavens. And the liturgical texts say that he who not even the universe could contain was contained within the womb of a virgin, making her more spacious than the heavens, and also a mystical or human tabernacle. Now, There's a very handy book that from time to time I refer to here on Light of the East, and I think it might still be in print. It was printed in 1968, published in 1968 by the Byzantine Seminary Press, Byzantine Seminary Press. It's called The Liturgical Year of the Byzantine Slavonic Rite, and it's by a priest named Father Bezo Shedegi. Father Bezo was a great scholar in my particular church years ago. And this book is very handy because it takes you through the major feast days of the liturgical calendar. It gives you the background of them, the spirituality and the history. And sometimes these descriptions are so good in this book that I just prefer just to just to read them straight out to you. And so I'm going to read from this book by Father Shedegi some excerpts about this feast day of the Immaculate Conception, or as we call it in the Eastern churches, the conception of the Mother of God in the womb of St. Anne. 
He says here that the first written source concerning the observance of this feast is in the Typicon of St. Sabas. Now, the Typicon is like the rule of liturgy, like what you actually pray and take and so on during the liturgical prayers. Although it was under a different name, it was called the Conception of St. Anne. Though this Typicon is dated 485 AD, this is already a revision of the original work, and it is possible that the feast was already mentioned in the earlier version. The same feast is also mentioned in the canon and the solemn hymns of St. Andrew of Crete. Now, this is in 720 AD. In the 8th century, you find detailed information in the sermons of John of Euboa. George of Nicomedia, a Greek preacher of the 9th century, has left a sermon for this day. It bears a title, Concerning the Child Begetting of St. Anne, and it was intended for a festal occasion, indicating that the day was already considered a feast. George in fact, no longer thought it necessary to urge the observance of the day, but took its existence for granted. Yet another writer in the same century, Peter of Argos, spoke of it as an accepted fact. Now, in trying to establish a date for the introduction of this feast, the following fact must also be considered. The Feast of the Conception of the Mother of God is similar in its basic idea to the conceptions of Christ and John the Baptist as described in sacred scripture. The child beginning of St. Elizabeth mother of St. John the Baptist, was celebrated both in East and West, as was the conception of Christ, the Annunciation. By virtue of this analogy, we may deduce that the conception of the mother of God must have been celebrated about the same time, that is, in the 5th century. The exalted person of the mother of God and the reverence paid to her from earliest times would most strongly suggest that the feats of her Immaculate Conception originated even before the Feast of the Conception of St. John. This showed early realization of the fact that Christ's mother was in every respect greater than his precursor, St. John the Baptist. Now, St. John Damascene in 749 AD is the doctor of the Incarnation and one of the last fathers of the Eastern Church, and he says this, Why is the Virgin Mary born of a one sterile mother? Plainly because it was necessary that the road to which that which was to be a new thing under the sun and the chief among wonders should be paved by wonders and that a gradual ascent should be made from the lower to the sublime. It is also interesting to note that the Apostolic See, in reviewing the liturgical books of the Byzantine Rite, retained in the newly published Liturgicon the Book of Epistles the Gospels, and the Divine Office for Sundays and Holy Days, the older name of the feast, which is the child beginning of Saint Anne, who conceived the blessed birth giver of God. So this feast is is very ancient. And although it is articulated a little bit differently between the Eastern and Western lungs of the church, nonetheless, if you look at the liturgical texts, especially in the East, you find that they both have this sense of the Virgin Mary, her conception being special, first of all, because it was to a childless couple, so it was miraculous in that regard, but also because she was preserved from sin. She was, in a sense, saved or redeemed in advance so that she would remain a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. She would remain sinless. She had to be a pure vessel to contain within her God himself. Sometimes you may have heard it said that the Eastern churches, especially the Orthodox churches, that they don't necessarily believe or have the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. 
Well, actually, that's a little bit misleading because we do, in fact, and the Orthodox churches do, in fact, have this feast of the conception of the Mother of God in the womb of St. Anne, as they call it in the East, and the liturgical texts point to the purity, the specialness of her conception. And in fact, the Western church developed its observance of the Immaculate Conception from the liturgical text and practice of the East. As you heard earlier, and from the Church Fathers of the East, this observance of the special conception of the Virgin Mary in the womb of St. Anne was celebrated and observed from at least the 5th century, maybe even earlier in the East. So there is a convergence point between these two. They may not articulate it exactly the same way between East and West, but they arrive really at the same point, and that is that the Virgin Mary remained a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ, was preserved from sin, and was a worthy tabernacle of the Lord. I want to thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. of Advent with Father Dominic Lay. Advent is the season when we prepare for the coming of the Christ child at Christmas. And it's a traditional Christian practice to prepare for any great feast with a season of penance or fasting. We fast before a feast. But here's the problem. When we're preparing for Christmas in Advent, the culture around us is already celebrating. How can we live a penitential season when it seems so festive and we're being invited to all these Christmas parties, for example? Well, here's one very practical tip. Choose a small penance that you can do this Advent to get ready for Christmas. Maybe if you know I'm going to a big Christmas party this evening, you can skip breakfast this morning. Maybe you can add a few extra prayers. Maybe you can make a point of going to visit the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament in the church on the day when you're going to be doing some special celebration. Let's celebrate Christmas well by preparing well at Advent. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!